Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. I feel like we need to do some disclaimers at the beginning of this episode. Oh, my goodness. This episode has been a journey. (laughs) How apropos. (laughs) Yeah. We were supposed to record it quite a while ago, but um, I got sick and Sarah got sick and then Sarah got sick again and I've still been sick. And then today we sat down to record and we had major microphone problems. So if we sound a little bit different, it's because we're recording in a slightly different setup, but um, we're here anyway. We're here anyway. Our audio quality may not be as good as typical. Our brain quality may not be as good as typical, (laughs) (laughs) but we're still really looking forward to talking about our, I was going to say the first wolf we've read for the podcast, but we already talked about A Room of One's Own earlier yeah. this month. So our first piece of fiction by Virginia Woolf on the podcast. All right, Sarah, before we get into our episode, we need to talk about our merch because timing so rarely works out that we like launch merch and then we actually get to record about it. That is a fault of our own and being so scatterbrain sometimes. But um, we're really excited because we have sweatshirts. We have crew neck sweatshirts for all of you and they are so cute. And Sarah, you were really adamant that we use specifically the Comfort Colors brand. So can you tell us about these sweatshirts? I I love these. I love Comfort Colors so much. Um, They're like, they're cotton sweatshirts and they are... um, well, first of all, all of the colors are like very nature inspired. So while there's like a little variety because of how they dye the colors, like they're always these like warm, rich, but somehow still like muted colors. Like they don't feel, I don't know. I don't wear a lot of colors. (laughs) I I prefer like earth tones. And these are like earth tones in color form. We're offering one gray for those who also like muted and one that's like this beautiful uh, green. Um, but what I really love is that unlike a lot of sweatshirts that are like, uh, kind of fleecy lined, these are, they're just like the cotton throughout. So they're a nice weight. Like I would say medium weight. They're not too heavy. They're kind of like halfway between like a thick t-shirt and a, and a sweatshirt. So they're just like a different layer than a lot of the the sweatshirts I have. They do have like the elastic wrist and and cuff, but it's not too hugging or too tight. Um, I love the way, I love the way they fit. I just, I love them. And oh, the best thing is that the more you wash them, just the cozier and like the more like fitted to your body it will feel. I love the colors. I love um, the look. Like I, I like sweatshirts that look really cute if you do true to size or if you do an oversized look. And I feel like with the comfort colors and with the design that we have, these sweatshirts will look really good either way you choose to go with them. 
Their novel pairings university sweatshirts. Our graphic designer did an incredible job making like this varsity sweatshirt look. So it really looks like you're getting a university sweatshirt, but you're representing novel pairings. We have pictures on our Instagram of them. We'll have a link to the shop in show notes. Um, They are $48, which I think is like a really great price for the quality of sweatshirt that you're getting. Um, And we have a 15% discount for Patreon members. So if you are a member, make sure you grab that coupon code. If you're thinking about becoming a Patreon member, now would be a great time because you can get that coupon code and you can stick with us for all that we have coming up in the new year. Um, And yeah, we're so excited to see everyone representing Novel Pairings University. And these are available for a very limited time. We only have a couple days left for the shop to be open. So if you're listening to this episode on a Tuesday, make sure that you go and buy your sweatshirt today. I know I need to, but I haven't decided what color I want. I need to, but so here's my workaround. Curtis said he wants a gray one and he'll get a more oversized one. And then I can just wear, (laughs) I can just steal that one and then get the green. So I think that's what I'm going to do. You need both, Sarah, just get both. I probably will. I do need both. <laughs> I mean, it's a tax write-off, right? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> if we could write off all of your sweatshirts on our taxes, we would, but we can't. Um, so go order <laughs> your sweatshirts and proceeds, honestly, will probably go towards summer merch. Um, so if you're excited about some future merch prospects, Yeah. We're super excited. I also, I was thinking, Sarah, like, we're a small business for everyone who's like, I want to support small businesses for Christmas gifts and Hanukkah gifts. We're a small business. Am I selling us hard enough? Am I selling the sweatshirts hard enough? Because I just, like, I really want everyone to wear these sweatshirts. They're so cute. They're so cute. And I will add, since you said, like, summer merch, I think that's the other thing I love about these sweatshirts. They're like, the comfort colors, they're like a great, like, cool mm-hmm. summer night yeah. sweatshirt because they don't have that fleeciness on the on the inside. They're they're really a perfect all-around layer. So let's let's get people in their sweatshirts. <laughs> All right. Stop in show notes for your link or go to our Instagram page and make sure you take a picture when you get your sweatshirt so we can see you. So Let's let's get right into to the lighthouse. Chelsea, what's your past experience with this work? I don't think I've ever read it all the way through. Oh, okay. Um but it felt familiar to me, so I must have read excerpts or maybe a first chapter or something. Um but never read it for class or for fun. So yeah, it was my first time reading it. And I always like when that happens for the podcast. Yeah, I know. it's. It seems, I mean, it's not that rare, but I think especially when there are these works of fiction or works by authors who are so foundational, it feels really special to cover it and read it for the first time. Yeah, you're a big wolf fan, Sarah. So what's your past experience with this book? Yeah, I um I read it. I, I think I read it in high school, not not assigned, but just you know, for fun. <laughs> and yeah. then um 
read it in college for my like thesis study class. Um, we all wrote undergrad theses at, at my college, but the way that it worked was like there were kind of different class offerings based on what your thesis was on. So I was in a modernist class and um, we read this and I I didn't write my thesis about To the Lighthouse, but I did use um, a sprinkling of some quotes here and there um, to kind of further emphasize what I was talking about with modernism. Um, so I, I'm like, but but then I haven't read it since then. So it's it had been a long time and I really, I really, really enjoyed returning to it. I think in, in large part because as a younger woman reading this, I was so focused on Lily Briscoe. Her name's Lily, right? I almost just said yeah. Lily Bart, and I was like, well, that's not <laughs> it. Lily Briscoe. And I was like, right at this time, I was like, okay, this book is about Mrs. Ramsey. Like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Isn't that thinking? wild yeah. how things change? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I felt very, um, very seen in this. Uh, what is she, 50? Um, yeah. Middle-aged woman yes. with many children. Yeah. 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 I don't even know if she's quite 50. I kept trying to, like, do the math. But, um, yeah. Her husband's quite a bit older than her, yes. which is, like, you know, par for the course for the time. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I have eight to say, kids. Sarah, I kept trying to keep count of them, and then when someone was like eight children, I was like, "Oh, oh wow!" Oh my goodness, yeah, I know. <laughs> I have to say, Sarah, for first-time wolf reader, having the Norton edition was so helpful. Did you read the Norton Critical Edition, or did you have like an annotated copy that you already had? No, I read I read the Norton Critical. I I don't know where the copy I annotated for school, you know, 15 whatever years ago is. So, um I was so happy to have the Norton too. Oh my goodness. Like I've we've used Norton for previous books on the podcast. I used it for Pride and Prejudice. Um there are a couple of other ones, but because I was already familiar with those, I don't think I used it in the same way that I did this time where I was really leaning on it. I found the introduction so helpful. The footnotes were really helpful. The context at the end were amazing. And I feel like I had such a better reading experience and understanding because of it. So Norton isn't like a formal sponsor of the podcast. They did send us these copies and I'm so glad they did because it made a huge, huge difference. We've been Norton fans for a long time, but we're just really glad to have this like connection with them now. Um, But I don't know. I just was blown away by how much it enhanced my reading of the text. Yeah. So did you read the introduction first? How did you approach it? I read some of the introduction first. It's a, it was and a long I, one. Yeah. And then I read like maybe halfway through the book. And then I was like kind of stalling out a little bit or having trouble focusing, which is probably more a me problem than anything. Um, but then I went back to the introduction and read 
further to just kind of like ground myself. And that was super helpful. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I went about it. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I read most of the introduction and then the text and then um, went back and like skimmed. The introduction has nice like headings so you can kind of go zoom to what you're interested in. Um, yeah, I, I I got so much out of out of that and um, and even just like the little the footnotes to like help yeah. contextualize something. So um, like we said, we've been huge Norton Critical Edition fangirls forever. And thank you to Norton for sending us these these books. Highly recommend. This is the I think this is their first edition of To the Lighthouse as a yeah, just came edition. out. Just came out October, right? Also, I have to say, I think they've changed the like the paper and the um binding a little bit, and it's much easier to open. Remember some of those other Nortons, they're like really yeah. hard to like fully bend open. Maybe it's because this is a slimmer work. I don't know, but it, I found it like much easier to read physically <laughs> than some other yeah. Norton critical editions. So uh highly recommend. I was also really glad that we read and discussed A Room of One's Own before I picked up to the lighthouse. Um I just felt like reading those pieces I said I almost said essays it's one essay but it's multiple lectures put together in a room of one's own reading and discussing that and also doing our Bloomsbury group episode just I don't always feel like I need a lot of author context or historical context for a work but in this case particularly when we know that Wolf was so intentional about what she was trying to do in her writing. It wasn't like she was just like sitting down and, and writing. She was like, this is what I want to do. Having all of that context for her and her philosophies, especially because this is such a philosophical introspective book was so helpful for me. And if it's helpful for me and we recorded it, I can only imagine. I hope that all of that context is really helpful for listeners too. All right. So before we get into a deeper discussion of this book, Chelsea, do you want to offer a summary? Oh, man. A summary is hard to do with this one because a summary is going to sound so simple compared to what the (laughs) book actually is. I know. I think that's why we need to do one. (laughs) Yeah. I really liked in the introduction, um, talked about how Wolf wanted this book to be like a modernist painting. And very specifically had in mind three parts. There would be a first part and a third part and a corridor in the middle. And that's, I mean, I feel like she certainly achieved that. So we have the first part, which is the window. And this is about the Ramsey family at their vacation home and um, their friends and neighbors and people who stay with them in the house their many children, their marriage. And a lot of it is Mrs. Ramsey being reflective, kind of seeing how the whole entire family and friend group revolves around her and her domesticity. And then um, we get the middle section, time passes. And this is a very short section, especially compared to the other ones. And it's just a couple of pages. um, And it is um, 
a few years in the future, we learn that Mrs. Ramsey has died and we get to see some of the characters um, in and out of World War One. This is really distilling World War One into a very short few pages. We have um, in brackets some really big major events. Um, and it's, yeah, it just, it serves as like this connecting piece to the last section, which is the lighthouse, which centers a little bit more on the um, introspective thoughts of Lily Briscoe, who is an artist and who was a guest. Um, and we did meet her in the first part, but she really had this like deep abiding love and admiration for Mrs. Ramsey. She is now back at the vacation home with some of the Ramsey family. Um, and you just get this sense that there really is this clear before, during, and after. Um, and those are the three sections. And obviously it sounds like not a lot happens. Everything happens, especially in that middle section. The um, Some of the boys go to war and they die. Um, people get married. They have children. Some other people die. Um, and, and it's a 10-year, did you say that? I, I, I don't know if it's a 10-year period. Years. Yeah. But um, in the middle of all of that, there's just a lot of like philosophical asides and um, the characters are really thinking and reflecting about life in general, about art, about legacy. Um, and that is, that's to the lighthouse. Yeah, but you didn't talk about the lighthouse. No. <laughs> so the book starts. There's a lighthouse. <laughs> well, I, I, I actually, I think that's really important. I think, so the book starts with James, the youngest son, saying that he wants to go. Well, it actually doesn't even start with him saying he wants to go. It's like in the it's the very middle of a conversation where his mother, Mrs. Ramsey, says that yes, he can go to the lighthouse tomorrow if the the weather is nice enough. Um, and that begins kind of this tension and argument with her husband through the whole piece of the the first part, which is just one one day. And then it actually doesn't end at the lighthouse, but the third part is the lighthouse where they, 10 years later, finally go to to the lighthouse. And then we go, we flash back to Lily, as you said, who's like kind of the central figure of that third part. Along the way, like she's trying to create this painting, capture the day, and she doesn't finish that until the third, third part either. Um so yeah, it's it's a like if you just talk about like the the plot in and of itself, it is so 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 little happens, um, and what does happen takes so long <laughs> to happen. Yeah. Um, so it's but it, she's doing such interesting things here. Um, so you you mentioned that you really were glad that you had read A Room of One's Own before reading this. Um, so why? Like what did what connections did were you making between the two as you were were reading? Because I love that thought. Yeah, there were so many philosophical connections, just like you could really clearly see 
some of the points that Wolf was making in A Room of One's Own coming up in this novel, just in a different way. Um, Some commentary on gender and um, sort of this like angel in the house figure of Mrs. Ramsey and how her work is treated similarly or differently. Um, The artist Lily Briscoe and the opportunities that she has and how she views her art. Um, I think there was a lot there. Even just some of the subtle nods, like Wolf talks a lot about Shakespeare and praises his genius in this novel and um, has some of the other characters talking about Shakespeare. Um, And even just some of those nods that you can see, like she's really consistent in her interests, in her views. Um, And I, I just thought that at least seeing, getting a picture into her mind in a room of one's own really helped me um, in this novel where it is a challenging text to read. There isn't formal dialogue. It switches perspectives really quickly. Um, you have to like pay really close attention. Just having some of those connections already there was super, super helpful to me. And just fun to kind of feel like it was a little bit of a scavenger hunt to like see, oh, well, she's like exploring the same idea that we discussed. Um, So it really just boiled down to those connections. I thought it was just, it was so fun. Every time she brought up Shakespeare or had the characters bring up Shakespeare, I was like, you nerd, Virginia Woolf. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I loved that too. And I don't know that I read them so close together. Maybe I did in, in college, but I, I loved it too. Or even, I mean, the book is described as written in stream of consciousness, which it is, but it's also free indirect discourse like Jane Austen uses. And she talks so much about Jane Austen in um, A Room of One's Own. So the way she like moves in and out of characters' minds is that free and direct discourse like Jane Austen. It feels stylistically very different than than Austen, but that kind of perspective, it's just like once she's in the characters' minds, their minds are a little bit choppier. Their thoughts are a little bit choppier than like an Austen character would be. And that's kind of the point. Yeah. And they're not like Austen characters are, you're getting into their mind to observe what's happening. Right. In Wolf, there's a little bit of that, but it's not so much observation as reflection. Yeah, and that interiority like, itself. Yeah. The characters are really thinking about a lot of things. So you're getting into the characters' minds to see like what they are thinking about, not necessarily like to tell the rest of the story. Um, I I know that Wolf, like famously, her writing is described as stream of consciousness style. I find that to be, uh, I don't want to say inaccurate, but I think it simplifies it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of misleading. I think that if you are going into this book expecting stream of consciousness, you might be expecting something a little bit different, less choppy, like you said. Um, I think it might be more accurate to say through her writing, Wolf is attempting to capture consciousness itself. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And I, I always, I, I, I know this isn't technically true, but I, I really 
think of stream of consciousness as more a single first person narrator's stream of consciousness. And this is, you know, very artfully chosen, which not that stream of consciousness isn't artful, but which moments she's going to zoom into a particular character's mind and try to capture their consciousness and then show what's happening in the consciousness of someone else. And so it it is different from, it's very modernist in the way that what it's showing about consciousness is how our minds do kind of leap from one thing to the next, to the, to the next in a way that isn't a clean narrative arc in that sense. I think that's what people are getting at when they describe it as that stream of consciousness. But I, I agree with you. And then I, I think that then what happens is stream of consciousness just becomes a catch-all term for like long rambling sentences, but Mm -hmm. that's not, that's not really the case either. So I, I agree. I think that it can be a little bit misleading and I think oversimplifying was a good way to put it. Yeah. And it's tricky to read sometimes because you get, um, you don't get clear dialogue cues either. And, um, sometimes it's a little tricky to figure out like who's actually talking, who's thinking about who's talking. Like you, you just have to really pay attention as you are reading. That's not to say it's not still difficult. Even when you are paying attention, there are some sentences that I was just like, I don't know what she means by that. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I don't know. (laughs) I I feel like I am the right reader for this book. Not in the sense that like, oh, I got, oh, I get it. (laughs) But I just am the kind of reader who like it, it does not bother me if I don't get things. I am perfectly fine letting things wash over me. Even if I'm like, not totally sure who said something or who thought something, I am totally fine letting that wash over because I know it will like all come together in the end. I also think that I like to read and hear every word on the page while I'm reading. And that's how you have to read Wolf. Like you really can't just like let your eyes skim over and and take it in. And so I find it I I find it very challenging, but I I don't I I don't think that this book is unreadable by a long stretch. Um yeah. No, it's just stylistically so different from what we encounter in your like general fiction. Mm-hmm. Um where um Wolf's, I th- I think, and this is another reason why A Room of One's Own kind of primed me for reading this, going into it not expecting like, well, I'm going to fall in love with a certain character or like I'm going to follow a linear plot. I went into it considering it more of a piece of art or a piece of philosophy or poetry. And according to like the introduction and the writings, like Wolf would be okay with that. She was looking to make a piece of art. She wanted literature to be art, just like you would look at a painting. And when you look at a painting, you don't take in every single detail with your eyes. Just like when you're reading this, you might not take in every single 
piece of what's happening and like make the meaning in your brain, but you get like the general impression and you form a thought about it and you can make some guesses. It really does. Like when she said she set out to make a modernist work that resembled modernist art, like I think she really did it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess you're just really good at taking an art, Sarah. No, I'm not good at taking an art. But <laughs> I feel like you have taught me a lot about my myself as a reader just in the little bit we've been talking about this because I do not pick up <laughs> I do not pick up books being like I can't wait to find follow this plot or I want to fall in love with a character. Like that's just not why I'm drawn to the books that I'm drawn to. I was telling somebody recently that I don't like plot-driven books because if I am just reading to find out what happened, I would rather somebody just tell me what happens and then I can be on to the next book that's doing something (laughs) deeper or more interesting to me. (laughs) So I, I think, I think once again, I just think that like Wolf is like either she formed my taste in that way to a large degree, or she just my taste really aligns with what she is doing. That's really fun to think about. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it is. I mean, I feel like you've, and of course I adore Jane Austen as well, but I feel like you have had similar kind of revelations and interests when we've reread Austen, like how much of her work has shaped what you look for in your fiction now. And yeah, Revisiting Wolf has been the, the same experience for me. That's so fun. Um, (laughs) Sarah, we've been circling and talking a lot about modernism. Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. What is distinctly modernist about this book? I pulled up our um, Venn diagram. Oh, you sent it to me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, From our handout. It's a little, this is a handout that goes with the class we taught in Patreon on modernism and postmodernism. That class is still, it's available as a video or as a podcast episode. Um, And so we have modernism on the one side, a few things from modernism, obscure illusions, fragmentary images, interior monologues, multiple points of view, focusing on the individual and the search for identity, high value on authenticity, and a search for redemption. Literally also, every single one of these things yes. is in this book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Episode like the, done. <laughs> the modernist book. Yeah. And in the middle, we also have experimentation, requires reader interpretation, disillusionment, stream of consciousness, fragmentation, skepticism, subjectivity. Yes. Check, 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 check. Was there, were there any that felt particularly important to you in this book? Either important, like, that that was maybe a focus of hers or important just in what you noticed uh, as a reader? Because, Um, yes, all of them are in here. I feel like we could could talk about every single one, but we don't have time. (laughs) Yeah, probably, I mean, probably the focus on the individual and the search for identity now that I'm looking at those. The search for identity really comes through. I mean, I'm thinking about um, Mr. Ramsey and like all of his stream of consciousness <laughs> um, throughout the book is like about him thinking about his legacy and like, who am I and what am I doing in my work? And um, 
am I going to be one of the great men that's talked about through history? Um, but all of the the characters and like those really deep philosophical thoughts have a lot to do with just like, <laughs> yeah, who am yes. I? Yeah, I, and I I think that what feels so modernist to me within that, and just I think is so in- interesting to me in modern literature is that there's like a like a bifurcation of that or like a double consciousness within that where where yes the characters are concerned about legacy and what they're what they're leaving but but that I think is a through line through a lot of of literature but the added interiority of like him wanting this this legacy to be this great man and to like be kind of recognizing at the same time that he's like pitiable and what he really needs is his wife to like pat him and tell him that she loves her and make him feel feel good like just this idea that you could be somebody totally different on the inside than like who you were or like wanting that interior identity beyond just like titles, land, the things that people saw. Um, That double self I think is so fascinating. And I think that's why the women characters are so much more interesting to me in this book is that they really understand that more than the men do. The men experience that too, but the women really get that who they are seen to be is different than who they are as their like, quote unquote, authentic identity. And I just, I love that exploration. Um, And that's always what I, to go back to like, you know, what I love about reading, that's always what I am interested in, in, in characters is that degree of like of nuance or like oh I said that but what I really thought was this but I couldn't quite communicate that or even if I could what would somebody say if I actually said that that level of thinking is so new to this time period and and so interesting to me you're reminding me of my favorite excerpt from the window um, and this is in Mrs. Ramsey's perspective. What what page um, are you on since we have the same editions? <laughs> so on page 49. Okay. No, she thought, putting together some of the pictures he had cut out. A refrigerator, a mowing machine, a gentleman in evening dress. Children never forget. For this reason, it was so important what one said and what one did and it was a relief when they went to bed. <laughs> For now, she need not think about anybody. She could be herself by herself. And that was what now she often felt the need of, to think. Well, not even to think. To be silent, to be alone. All the being and the doing, expansive, glittering, vocal, evaporated. And one shrunk with a sense of solemnity to being oneself a wedge-shaped core of darkness, something invisible to others. It's so good. It's so good. And on one level, it like really meets what you're talking about with that just like desire for interiority, that desire to like think and have one's own identity separate from that public facing. Um, But it's Mrs. Ramsey talking about like how she's turned on all day. She's like 
the light switches flip so that she can be like present for her children. And when they go to bed, she's like, I can just be me. And if that isn't the most relatable thing I've ever read. Totally. For my current moment in life, like it, it just meets me at like a couple different levels that like really practical level of like, oh, that's exactly how I feel when I put my kid to bed. And also like that, that deeper sense of the self Mm -hmm. and like having the silence to just be with Mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I think throughout the book too, a little bit of anxiety there that if yourself isn't just like what you do and, and who people see all day, then you have to cultivate something else as your sort of anchor of authenticity. And I think that can be can be unsettling or a little scary. Um, and the way different characters approach that is is really interesting. I think I think Mrs. Ramsey is like the I mean she's the anchor of this this book and she really has I think one of the best formed senses of of self because I think in that role as mother and and wife she really understands that who she is to all of these different people is a slightly different self and so the like what's on the inside what's maintained as consistent um has to be something of her own creation, not what people are asking her to be all the time. Yeah, she seems to move through those different selves with intentionality. Yes. Um, and you can you can see that when she's like kind of switching into one role or the other. And she's like actively serving that role, but then also thinking in the back of her mind to like analyzing what she's doing and like thinking about her um, identity in that role. Um, Yeah, it's, there's so much more. I mean, the gender dynamics in here are so much deeper than just like, well, Mrs. Ramsey is a housewife and she's like seeking that sense of self outside of her duties or um, the, I think, the dynamics where she's also like, she's really pushing people to get married and all of that, like, there's just so much going on um, with her. I found, yeah, I certainly found her really interesting. I don't know if I would have if I had read this in college, like you had said, Sarah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even like my my interest in my first readings was definitely Lily Briscoe, who, you know, it is an important figure in the first part, but really, you know, she becomes the the one of our guides sort of through part three. Um, and she is just, she's basically just trying to finish a painting this whole time. And what I, and I, I found that to be very illuminating of what Wolf thinks about women artists. And there's so much here about women and, and art, but like the part of her painting that's like giving her so much trouble is trying to capture Mrs. Ramsey. And so even her attention is focused on, on Mrs. Ramsey. So, um, and it, you know, Wolf didn't have kids, but I feel like she really captures motherhood so well. And um, yeah, I just, I found it really interesting that she, she doesn't seem to have a sneering attitude towards domesticity 
at all and really sees the work of um, the invisible labor, as we would say now, of keeping a family together and running. Yeah, it feels so modern. Yes, in the um, other sense of the word. <laughs> right. And I mean, we talked a little bit about that with A Room of One's Own, too. Like, how did she know that we would be talking about the mental load and the the work and the importance of domestic work and calling it work? Um, yeah, she just, there is this, this is, this is why she's a classic. Um, there is this really unique sense of um, importance in that realm. Um yeah, I I loved in particular reading those passages in the beginning. What do you think of the middle section, Sarah? Um, like, I feel like it's easier to talk about the first part and the third part because of that, like, very distinct interiority. Talk, we can talk about, like, what certain characters are thinking at certain moments, but that middle section is a little bit more elusive. And I'm wondering if you have some commentary to share on that. I don't, I don't know that I do, other than I, I think that it's kind of fascinating that, and, and very modernist, that what we would consider the big moments are moved through very quickly, right? The, the whole war, um, Mrs. Ramsey's death, um, Andrew dying in the war. Uh, Prue dying in childbirth, like uh, all of these like very big moments, like whole novels could be written about any of those, those things. Um, or, you know, she could have written an, a family epic that's like all stretched out. But the way she gives notice and gives attention to these seemingly random days, um, or at least seemingly insignificant days bookending that I think is saying a lot. And without showing all of those things in the middle, you wouldn't notice that she's that what she's doing is showing the smaller moments in the smaller days. I think that that is, you know, really, really significant. I'm sure there's more she's doing in there for sure. Um, but I don't feel like I have a ton to, to say in terms of analysis, one of, I, I just marked in um, the window, this is the, the first line of chapter 17, so page 64 in, in our book, is just Mrs. Ramsey saying, thinking, but what have I done with my life? And, you know, I feel like in a, in a book coming prior to this one, like a, a Victorian novel, say, the character would think, but what have I done with my life after her oldest son dies or on her deathbed? Not just as she's going about the day, you know, planning the dinner party, um, trying to, like, keep the peace between her her husband and her son. But I think that that's much more reflective of real life. Not that those questions wouldn't come at big moments as well, but that they're part of these small Moments in day-to-day life, I think, is a, a little bit of what this book is trying to show. And by juxtaposing it with kind of moving quickly through all of those big things, I think it really highlights how important – I don't know. I don't even really like the phrase important because that gives too much maybe 
moral weight or something, but but how real it is that the that there's philosophy in the day-to-day life as well. Um, this is such a good transition to a question that I kept thinking throughout my reading um, because of something that is posed in the introduction, which is that Wolf was really setting out to capture reality. That she specifically said, like, I want to capture life on the page. Like, not just write about some people going about their lives. I want to capture life itself in this novel. Um, And so I just kept thinking, like, how is she accomplishing that? And how is this reflective of real life or not? Um, Because... I don't, it's not the most, like, although she does include some, like, um, tactile details of, like, the wallpaper of the cottage and, like, descriptions, it doesn't feel like a tactile novel to me. It's not capturing the, like, physical feelings of life, right? But I think with the way that time passes in our minds and our memories, often the big things do feel like a blip compared to the current day that we're living in. Like all of that stuff happened and boom, boom, boom. And now we're here. Um, And relativism and sort of that sense of how time passes, like all of that was just being uncovered and investigated in Wolf's time It's not an understanding of time that we always had. Um, And I think part of why she feels so modern and present to contemporary readers is like these ideas that we kind of think of as given were new in her time and she's exploring these new ideas in her writing. So like that sort of a stretch of a day and it feels like the day is stretching out before you and then, oh my goodness, all of a sudden all of these things happen in the course of years And then it's another day stretching out. That kind of, to me, feels like true to how we think back on our our lives. Like the current day that you're living in feels relatively time-wise different and more expansive and minute by minute compared to when you think about like, oh yeah, that happened to me. And yeah, that trauma happened. And then this big world event happened. It's in our consciousness, time is not all the same. And she's capturing that on the page in a really unique way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I completely agree. I I think that this book does really. I mean, it, it's just the yeah the way we think about our lives, the way we experience them, is not the same way we read about a, read a traditional novel with that like you know rising and falling action. Which is why I think a lot of people don't like reading Wolf because maybe you don't want to experience reality in your novels. And that is perfectly, perfectly okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that this book is really setting out, really achieves what it set out to do in that capturing reality, in that capturing something artistic, right? Being a piece of, of art. It's fascinating to me that those were two of her tensions, intentions because they feel so in, they, yeah, there's tension between them, right? The idea that you're creating reality and the idea that you're creating a piece of art. It's like, 
two, those are two very different things, but I think she's doing both very well. Yeah, I think the other thing that felt real to me was um, the way that the characters can be, they'll be doing something. And then all of a sudden they're thinking about something totally different. And then it's like they snap yes. back to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So like Mrs. Ramsey's so reading real. a book. Yeah, she's reading a book to her child, but her mind isn't there. Her mind is wandering and thinking about like a thousand different things. And then all of a sudden she's back in the story with him. And that felt so real, not just as a mother, like certainly I'm not always like there (laughs) absorbing the picture book that I'm reading, but um, just in general, as a person, that ability to be doing something, but your mind isn't exactly there. um, And like wandering in and out of that activity and in and out of that consciousness felt like she really captured that essence of reality in that way too. My mind was just wandering a little bit right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I, I th- I'm, I'm just hearing some noises from outside and I feel like the audio on this episode is going to be, I'm so sorry, listeners. Um, <laughs> but, and, and I think that the idea that what is happening in that interiority is as worthy of like artistic notice is also so new here um, that not just showing what people are doing, but like like where they are um, in the interior, where their mind is wandering. And, and I think it can be hard to appreciate things like that because not that every writer right now is writing like Virginia Woolf. That's certainly not the case. But those ideas about like, you know, showing who what characters are doing as well as like what they're thinking on the inside is like so ingrained now in what we kind of expect from from books that it can be hard to appreciate how much new she's doing with that. Sarah, is there anything else that you want to mention or any passage that you want to read before we get into our pairings? Um well, I <laughs> Okay, I'll read one part because I read this, and then I wrote at the top of my page, casually cruel for the sake of being honest. <laughs> <laughs> but this is Virginia's Wolf, Virginia Woolf's version of, of that. What to page are you on? 27, the very top. Oh, gosh, that's so funny. To pursue truth with such astonishing lack of consideration for other people's feelings, to rend the thin veils of civilization so wantonly, so brutally, was to her so horrible an outrage of human decency that, without replying, dazed and blinded, she bent her head as if to let the pelt of jagged hail, the drench of dirty water, bespatter her unrebuked. There was nothing to be said. (laughs) that's great yeah do you think Virginia Woolf would like Taylor Swift no (laughs) why um I think that well okay I think she might appreciate the idea of turning into um into art something that's feelings that have been kind of relegated to the side or seen as unimportant. But I think that Wolf was very concerned with like 
with creating art that shaped philosophy and like was political in its own own way and i think swift is so uh so consciously avoidant of those things you know which is political in its own right to just be like no i am going to make my art about what it's like to be me and a and a young woman um but i think that i think that wolf would have problems with that way of being a mega artist of not using your position uh for something more radical what do you think i didn't have any thoughts on that it was, it was just a totally <laughs> random question that came out of my mouth <laughs> i think that your answer is is great i don't have anything to add to that i yeah <laughs> I wasn't thinking anything about it. I was just curious. We can discuss uh, discuss further at book club that question if if we yeah. would like. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sarah, let's talk about pairings. You must have some really good ones since this is like your zone for for reading. Well, I have so I had so many that I I'm just doing three that came out this year. Um, but I am going to offer a, an additional fourth that I just think more people should should read as well. So uh, my first is The Long Form by Kate Briggs, um, which is actually out from um, New York Review of Books. I think their big sale is over, unfortunately. Um, but this is a book about – it takes place in one day. It is about – Okay, also, I'm going to have to say, because all of these are so in line with Wolf, like, it's going to be really hard to describe and sell any of these, just like it's so hard to tell someone what To the Lighthouse is about. But just trust me that the the depth is there. Um, It is about a woman named Helen. She is the mother of a newborn, um, or like a six-week-old, and... The book begins with her pacing around her living room, trying to get the baby to fall asleep. And she has like this whole, like, you know, this whole routine of how she does it. Um, And she like makes kind of like bargains with like not God, but like an unnamed like universal force. Like, okay, if I skip this step, then this time the baby will fall asleep as I pass the the play mat. Um, and then when she finally gets the baby to sleep and she like pats its bottom and rocks it as she tries to set it down. And as soon as she sets it down, her, the baby's a girl, as soon as she sets her down, the doorbell rings. Um, and she goes to get it and it's a package and she remembers that, like, late one night, she ordered herself a copy of Tom Jones, the novel. Um, and then the rest of the book is just about her, like, dealing with baby stuff and reading a little bit of Tom Jones here and there. Tom Jones is considered one of the, like, first novels in the English language. And so from there, what she really begins doing is questioning, like, what is a novel and how the form of a novel is very masculine in terms of its directional storytelling, but how her experience of 
the day as a woman and a new mother is very, like, absent of, of time and impressionistic and circular. And the book is full of images, like there's a map of her living room with where the play mat is. There are all of the, like, tons of the, like, black and white contrast images that you show to babies, like, interspersed throughout. And she kind of uses those as, um, as impressions of, like, how her day looks to herself. Um, it's really, really fascinating. And when I was, you know, first started reading again after having Louise, like, one of the one of the, one thing that would drive me crazy was like every time there'd be a line in the book like she went to put the baby down for a nap and it's like but how <laughs> like you know like she either she has the unicorn baby or she just puts it in the crib and it's sleeping or like you're skipping like 45 minutes of this woman's day right um and if you have ever had that thought, this is a book that you should read because it goes into that in minutia. Um, so, I mean, it's obviously, it's for a very particular type of reader, this book, but I think it is so in line with what Wolf is is doing here. That sounds perfect. Yes. For <laughs> um. Sarah, did you think about wellness by Nathan Hill at all as you were reading To the Lighthouse or thinking about pairings? Uh, no, I didn't. But I think that'd be a great pairing because of the kind of the tangents and the interiority. Yeah, I so I don't think I would have thought of this except that I am currently listening to wellness. Mm-hmm. And then like in between that listening, I read To the Lighthouse and um I just, I think it's interesting, like, Wolf is exploring consciousness in light of these new breakthroughs in philosophy and psychology. And Nathan Hill is exploring consciousness and reality in light of new breakthroughs and reflections on technology and algorithms and how our reality is being shaped. And so it feels like they are exploring similar things. Um, but of course the different time periods. Um, so I don't know. I just, I kept thinking about Wolf as I was listening the other day. Um, and there are those tangents and I think that Wolf's tangents, so to speak, or her sort of like dips in and out of consciousness I don't see that as much in contemporary books, but what I do see a lot in contemporary books is what Hill is doing where the tangent is either something of a historical artifact or a story from the past. And so it is a little bit Wolf-esque where the character will be doing something and then all of a sudden we go on a journey with the author to this other thing and then we come back to the character but it's not in the character's consciousness. It's something outside that shapes that consciousness. And so it's a similar, it's a similar tool, but it's just used differently in modern literature. I feel that's what I see in a lot of novels, not just wellness by Nathan Hill. So I was just, I was really thinking about it structurally in those ways, thinking about it philosophically, I think that there's a lot to be considered around marriage and domestic life with wellness. There are um, tangents and questions about art 
and the importance of art and viewership of art and how um, society shapes art versus what you want to create. Um, And I was just thinking of all of these connections that I don't know if I would have if I wasn't almost reading them in tandem. Um, So yeah, okay, I guess that's my pairing. Wellness by Nathan Hill. Um, It feels a little funny, I think, to pair a book written by a dude with Wolf. As I said on a previous episode, I feel like <laughs> white men had a pretty good year in books this year. It's and true. This was one of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I just, I especially am interested in um, his exploration of like algorithms shaping our reality. Mm-hmm. And I think if Wolf were writing today, that exploration of consciousness, you could not separate the two. Mm-hmm. Our consciousness is so shaped by algorithms and the internet and this like other reality that we're experiencing. And also it produces questions of like, well, what is my true self? Yeah. So um, very different novel, big, sweeping, chunky novel. But I don't know. I think it makes an interesting pairing. So Wellness by Nathan Hill. Yeah. I, I One of the things he said he was interested in and doing with that, with wellness is exploring like different types of delusion and self-delusion. And I feel like you could say that about to the to the lighthouse as well. So I think it's a great pairing. All right, Sarah, what's next on your list? My second one is also by a, a white dude. Um, but and and honestly, I'm not sure how much I liked this book, but I it is such a an apt pairing. Um it is Day by Michael Cunningham. And I think this is, I think that this might be intentionally mirroring to the lighthouse because Michael Cunningham wrote The Hours, which is based on Mrs. Dalloway, right? So, um, or, you know, and, and it's about Virginia Woolf. So, I mean, he's a wolf guy. So I, I think that, I think he's doing something here. Um, so the book this is a pandemic novel, and I really, like, you know, think that if you're not wanting to read a pandemic novel, don't read this. Um, it starts in, on I think it's April 5th of 2019, and we get a day in the life of this family. And it's a mother, a father, uh, two kids, and then... Um, the, the mother, Isabel, her brother lives with, with them. And he, her brother, like, needs to, to move out because the kids have been sharing a room that's gotten to be not really feasible anymore. They need the space. Um, and it's, but he's kind of the heart of the family, and it's sort of destroying the, the family. Um, there are also some side characters and I'm saying this because I know a lot of readers struggled with like these side characters who only seem very like tangentially related to the family, but basically the their setup is it's a woman and and uh, and a man who he might be the father's brother. He's connected to the family somehow. He was basically this woman's sperm donor. They have a child together, but he wants to be more involved than she wants him to be, et cetera. Um, and it's just a, like the morning 
in their life. That's it, just the morning. And then we flash forward to the same April 5th of 2020. And we're like in the heart of the COVID pandemic, right? And then we flash forward to April 5th, 2021. So it's in three parts. It's like following, you know, a day in the life. Um, I would argue like kind of through that tunnel or that corridor through through conflict, just like in To the Lighthouse. Um, and it really is about the interiority of these characters and them trying to figure out who they are to themselves and, and to their family. Um, there is a lot in here, too, about social media and onlineness. Um, the brother and sister have created together this, like, fake Instagram account, basically, for who they, like, the, the version of themselves they wish they could be. And that's an important component of the book. Um, the things I didn't love about this book were the, the dialogue was just not how I think people talk to each other. And even some of the interiority was just, you know, when I read Wolf, like it feels a little bit dated, but it, but it does feel still like how a lot of people think. This book didn't really feel like how people really think to me, but it's clear he's like trying to do the same thing that, that she's doing. Um, I also don't think he writes women characters that great. But I just think if you just read To the Lighthouse Day, it's a short, short novel. Um, it's so present and timely, like covering the last couple of years. Um, I think it would be a really fascinating experience. I read them very close together, and I found it fascinating, even not loving this book. I just thought it was a really interesting exercise. Um, so that's Day by Michael Cunningham. Yeah, we didn't even talk about all the side characters into the lighthouse. I know, so I many know. Of them. Yeah. And I feel like you could, it's the kind of book where you could pick out one thing and you could really assign a lot of meaning to it. Yes. Um, and dig deep. So it'll be fun to talk about more at book club. But um, I think I'm going to pair some poetry, Sarah. I um, that. I think you could read Wolf as poetry very easily. Um, in order to make sense of some of her sentences and her writing and read Wolf in the same way that you read poetry and just like let it wash over you. Um, the poets that came to mind when I was thinking about like who to pair with Wolf were Maggie Smith and um, Kate Bear. Um, I haven't read as much of Maggie Smith's poetry. I love her Substack and I love um, her memoir um, writing. Um, she, in her subsect, she actually sometimes annotates her poems, um, to illustrate like the meaning and how they're constructed. And so if you, if you like that kind of thing, you should go check it out, but I'll actually pair my personal favorite Kate Bear collection is, and yet that's her second one. Um, and she explores a lot of the same themes that Wolf explores, motherhood, friendship, love, grief, um, the passage of time, identity, having some sort of sense of self. Um, and it's Bayer's poetry is certainly accessible. Um, but I don't know. I just think, I think Wolf 
is incredibly poetic. And if we don't talk about the poetry of her writing, we're sort of doing a, a disservice to the way she crafts sentences so beautifully. Um, and I think that it's just an, a different way to access Wolf is reading reading her as a poet. So I just, I don't know. I think poetry is a good avenue to pair with something that doesn't have have the plot and have it has so many themes and so a poetry collection also so many sweeping themes um and there's something just so interior about a poetry collection there's something so interior about like getting into the mind of a poet but then also the way that I don't know the way that I read poetry feels very interior and reflective to me and I can be thinking about the line of a poem as I'm going about my day the next day. So, um, and yet by Kate Bear, I think is a, is a good pairing here. Great pairing. I love that. My, uh, third one, but not final one, cause I'm going to attack on a fourth <laughs> is Orbital by Samantha Harvey. And this one comes out, uh, December 5th of, so just next week. And I included this in my uh, fall compendium. Um, and when I did, I wrote that this read like if Virginia Woolf wrote sci-fi. And that is what this book reads like. It is about six astronauts or cosmonauts um, who are orbiting the Earth on, on one of the last space station missions in this, you know, close but but um, alternate future. And um, as they orbit, it, we float between the minds of all six of, of them. And they have this, you know, almost godly, like distant, all-encompassing view of Earth. And they, it forces them to think a lot about their identities, what it means to be part of community, who they are, um, the the fate of the the planet, and it. But it also, I mean, it's called orbital. It really is also about that experience of not being being on a mission that's not about getting somewhere. And over the course of this novel, which I think is like 120 pages or something. Oh, it's it's a little shy of 200 pages, but it reads fast. It's like a short little book. Um, there is another team of astronauts who's headed to the moon. And so there's just all of this reflection over like what it means to, to have a path, a clear path from A to B versus to orbit. And I mean, I think to the lighthouse, right, is very much asking a similar question in an astonishingly different way. Like, I don't know that Virginia Woolf could have conceptualized of there being people orbiting the earth or traveling to the moon, right? But she's still asking that similar question about like directionality versus this circular experience of of living. Um, This is a very philosophical book orbital is i would definitely describe it as more of like a meditation than a narrative it's so beautiful and i know a few other people who have read this already and and they're very different readers from each other and they both loved it and so 
I think this is a great, um, it could be a great gift book since it's not coming out until December and it's just short and very different and, and not, not bleak. It's very beautiful. So it is Orbital by Samantha Harvey. That sounds really good. I think you would like it. Yeah, it's that sounds intriguing to me. Um, okay, Sarah, I am going to share finally a book that is on my to-be-read list. I have not read this one, but I did read an article about it. I think I sent this to you, the Shakespeare in Bloomsbury um, oh, yeah. article. Like right after we recorded A Room of One's Own, it was like that night this article popped up um, for me. Thanks, algorithm. <laughs> um, but... It just, it sounds so good. So Shakespeare in Bloomsbury is a nonfiction book by Marjorie Garber. Virginia Woolf loves Shakespeare. I also love Shakespeare. So like, I just can't, I can't help but pair this book. This is the story of how Shakespeare influenced Virginia Woolf and the entire Bloomsbury group. Um, And just the description of this sounds so good and like warm and inviting and such a peek into these artists' lives. For the Bloomsbury group, Shakespeare was like their muse. They talked about him all the time, debated about him. They read Shakespeare together and like performed his plays in the garden. They went to the theater and they discussed performances of Shakespeare's plays. They loved him as a poet. They loved him as a playwright. And just every member of the Bloomsbury group agreed that Shakespeare was a genius. And I think it's so interesting to be part of a group where you like have this common icon that you're all kind of worshiping. Um, And so this book, because there is so much writing from the Bloomsbury group, their novels, their letters to each other, their journals, all of this, and Shakespeare is such a presence. This author was able to put together like what Shakespeare meant to all of these people. Um, and it's such an interesting cast of characters. The Bloomsbury group is fascinating. Um, I think it's just really interesting to see how Shakespeare influenced all of them. And it's almost like he is a ghost member of the group. Like he, you could say Shakespeare was part of the Bloomsbury group because of how present he was in their lives. So um, just, I, I wasn't going to pair this. Like I didn't set out once I found out about this book, like I didn't file it away as, ooh, for to the lighthouse. But once Shakespeare was brought up again and again and again into the lighthouse, I was like, oh yeah, we've got to, we've got to pair Shakespeare in Bloomsbury by Marjorie Garber. I think it just sounds so fun. Oh, I love that. Um, That does sound fun. If you read it, let me know. Yeah, I will. Um, Okay. My, I'm adding one. I actually, I I did like a whole uh, bonus episode on Patreon about this contemporary book because it, one thing that our patrons like when we do is like little reverse episodes, like a book that we recently read and then pair it with some classics. So I I did one of those on Assembly by Natasha Brown and just wanted to add that as a fantastic pairing for To the Lighthouse. It is about, um, there's a, it's an unnamed narrator, it's Stream of Consciousness, and our narrator is a Black British woman and she is, she works in finance in London um, and she has had to sacrifice a lot and endure a lot for that that job. And she's engaged um, 
or is she engaged? She's not engaged, but she's been dating for a while. This, this, um, this white man. And he is about to take her to his like family's estate for a garden party. And it's really just like, again, it's kind of a point A to point B novel as she's thinking about like what it will be like when she's there, um, how to compose herself quote unquote correctly for this space. Um, The title is very apt because it's about her kind of assembling the pieces of her identity. So it really is about like a woman reflecting on, on who she is and like who she, who she considers her authentic interior self to be versus who the world sees. Um, And it has, it, it, it just, it surprised me. I'll just say say that it, this book really surprised me. I loved it. It is just a little over 100 pages, um, and I think if you like Wolf's writing, you would like Natasha Brown's writing, which is also uh, quite. Um, she writes long, long sentences that you have to pay attention to, and and I really, really love this one. All right. Everyone stick around because we have some announcements. So first, like we said at the top of the show, order your sweatshirts because the shop is closing soon. Um, We have these beautiful Novel Pairings University sweatshirts available for you. The link will be in the show notes or it is in our Instagram bio or if you subscribe to our newsletter, you've got it. If you're a Patreon member, you get a 15% discount. Um, The shop closes on November 30th, so place your order for your sweatshirts. Um, Next announcement, for December, we are doing a short story club episode, and we are reading The Garden of Forking Paths by Jorge Luis Borges. So we're going to get into some postmodernism. We'll pull out our Venn diagram again for that episode, I'm sure. Um, And in January and February, we are celebrating Wharton in winter, and we're reading The Custom of the Country. Um, So we're very excited for this read-along. We will be doing recap episodes for literature scholars on Patreon, much like we did for the Odyssey. Um, And we'll have all sorts of exciting Gilded Age content for you for January and February. Um, So sweatshirts, gorgeous. Wharton, Sarah, are there any other important announcements we need to make? I don't think so. I don't think so. Of course, we'll be we'll know more soon about spring semester. Can't believe it's coming up on on that. I but know. our our perennial announcements of you know, if you haven't in a while, share novel pairings with somebody you know in real life. Text them a link to this episode if you think they would like it. If you are are listening to this and it's been a while since you shared in your social media. We'd love for you to do that. Or if you haven't written a review yet, um, please do that. All of those are ways that really, really help us find uh, new, new listeners and keep growing our show. You can find us at Novel Pairings Pod on Instagram. 
You can find us at novelpairings.substack.com for a free weekly newsletter. And you can find our nerdy, delightful community at patreon.com slash novel pairings. You can join us for as little as $5 a month for bonus episodes or as much as $20 a month to be a producer. Thank you so much to those producers. Thank you to Diane, Emma, Dilma, Kathy, Amy, and Jody. You make this show sustainable and possible, and we cannot thank you enough for the support. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back soon with more nerdy episodes, our modern readers, our short story club, our Wharton in winter. We can't wait for everything that's coming up. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. 